Jazz. Is we ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? I hope so. We'll see. I'm kind of high right now on chili nutter and red wine, so you know we'll see what why that are leads you, us. Why are, why, why are you? Why are you? Why are you? What's going on with you? What's your excuse? I got a big bag of chili nutter and then I ate most of it, so I'm full of chili what is nutter. Chili nutter. It's like peanuts and some kind of weird-ass crust that's been – they've been coated then with a extraordinarily addictive orange coating that I assume is five parts chili powder and one part cocaine. And then you just <laughs> you eat them until you can't eat anymore or the bag is empty, which is typically the second condition there. Frankly, I, I assume they had you at chili powder, so <laughs> they didn't need to add the cocaine – for you to come back. It's true. They really didn't. It was that's overdoing it. That's it's a sort of a, a double security there, like belt and suspenders to make sure I'm absolutely addicted. I will say our yeah. mutual friend Barb also liked them, so I'm not the only one. My wife just looks at them and says, What the fuck is that? and just backs away slowly <laughs> with a look of horror okay. in her eyes. It's certainly nothing nature makes. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast one forty two. He's Mike. Oh yeah, he's Pat. And I've promised no long food rant today. I'm not going to go off on a tangent as I did about the samosas. I'm just going to say this phrase, Sprite flavored with cucumber. Goddamn you, Europe. That's just wrong. What is wrong with other countries? (laughs) What is wrong with other countries? Why do they they take... It's not that Sprite is any heavenly thing in itself, but why would you pollute it with cucumber? And so anyway... I picked some. I'm going to up- keep doing this. I'm, I'm going to see how many times I can make you say, and so anyway. Keep going. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Be like a broken record. God knows. A malfunctioning real to I think it's tape. fair that you have to experience what I experience in 90% of my classes. You know, when things run off the rails, and then I sort of snap my fingers and say, and focus. That's right. Come on, train. <laughs> you like it up here on these metal parallel bars. Come on. Come on. Come on back. So after. Cecil Taylor, I thought. <laughs> Sorry, back, I already know where this is going. <laughs> back to the blanket port we go. Really is kind of, Mike has been swamped with end of semester grading. And so he asked me to pick some things and I picked a couple of things that had come across the desk and a couple of slightly older recordings, mostly I think in a fairly mellow vein as a come down from our banging friend Cecil. Yes. So anyway, the uh, selections tonight are Shamey Royston's Beautiful Liar from this year, Ted Serrata's Rebel Souls vs. the Forces of Evil from 2000, Christian Artman's Our Story, also from 2018, and Black Flower's Abyssinia Afterlife from 2014. And the Black Flower I kind of threw on there because on our Party Jazz episode, which was fairly recent it was uh, number 139 i mentioned them a couple times i saw black flower live in sweden and so i found this album in a download service that i pay for and and got it and thought well we should listen to one of theirs having mentioned them a couple times otherwise uh, a couple of these were review copies and then i just kind of tracked down this the the uh 
versus the forces of evil, mainly because it features one of our favorite guitarists, Jeff Parker. Any preferences about what we dig into first, other than a delicious, delicious vegetarian curry? <laughs> I don't care. Um, let's. I'll tell you what I do care. Let's go in. Re- let's go in reverse chronological order. Okay. Kristen Hartman's our story. Let's go there. <laughs> so yeah, our story is probably out by the time this goes live. It's a Sunnyside recording. It's Christian's third as a leader. Christian is an alto and concert flute player. And as his promotional materials attest, he's one of the few flute specialists in jazz at the moment. I am a well-known lover of the flute. And we did a flute episode, my God, a long time ago at this point. The jokes write themselves, but yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, I have no idea what Mike's talking about, but he's he's got certain <laughs> hang-ups we don't want to go into here. Pat likes it long and witty. Okay, yes, back on episode six, which I believe was titled Baby Making Music, we had a special on flutes and flautists. <laughs> And uh, my favorites, as were ascertained during that episode five years ago, James Newton and Lou Tabakin, both because I think they've got a good, ripe tone on the instrument. Christian, I think, has got an interesting tone, too. It's Well, we'll just talk about it. He certainly, you can tell that he's somebody who takes his instrument seriously and, and specializes on it. This record features Laszlo Gardoni on piano, Johannes Weidenmuller, possibly. Look at you! Bass. And Jeff Hirschfield, I've been living in Sweden for a while, Jeff Hirschfield drums. So it's basically a quartet. Elena McIntyre is added on vocals occasionally. Yes. On a couple tunes. Our story again, brand new recording. Sunnyside at this point is looking like a major label to me. It's not, but it is a kind of a a relatively known quality in the jazz world. I think it's issued reliably good music. I don't know. I, I think they're identity as being modern mainstream they're not a label that's pushing out nothing but avant-garde stuff like i don't know act or something right i've got a number of favorite recordings on this one uh what do you think of mr artman's release here so i'm going to start by saying you know it's really hard for a flute player to make their way in the world of jazz maybe more than any other instrument except in your view accordion there are a lot of pitfalls or places where a flute jazz recording can can go wrong so they always have to grapple with it seems to me they have to grapple with the the potential for smooth jazz or elevator jazz to be a label unfairly applied to their music there's also the the fusion bear trap that that seems to be available many times and so the best flute players always kind of find a way into and around these problems that are creative and interesting and I think that Christian Artman is a really good player, but I'm not sure the album always escapes some of these potential minefields. It's probably my least favorite recording of the ones we're going to talk about today, and that's not 
to say I don't like it. I do like it. I think it's pretty good. I like certain things better than other things, and some things I, I don't like much at all, although I could see easily how someone else's mileage would vary. So, for example, the vocal and flute doubling that happens on several numbers just gets up my nose. It's not my thing. Okay. I don't like it. Always here opens and closes with it. We get it again on Earthling. And it always has a weird 70s spacey vibe for me. And I, I don't particularly, it's not a sound that I gravitate to. I don't like it. What I mean by this is the, the, the vocalists, they're not singing words. They're, they're simply doubling right. the melody the flute's playing, which, okay, that's hard to do. I mean, it's not simple. It obviously takes great talent on both their parts. I don't particularly like it. The rendition of, I'm just going to focus on the vocalist for a minute. Um, the rendition of Amazing Grace, I think, is pretty good. They take it at a minor key, which I think is smart, and it builds very nicely toward the end, so it's not just sort of a stately hymn. And putting it in a minor key is always a kind of interesting move to me. I mean, I've heard other minor key recordings of it, but it, it gives it a more sardonic, ironic feel to the song. You know, when you hear the lyrics, but they're in this decidedly darker vein. I kind of like that. I thought that was pretty smart programming. Probably my favorite thing here is Elena, an up-tempo number. So with a flute quartet, you're going to basically get a lot of flute soloing over rhythm, and it helps if the pianist, Laszlo Gardoni, is really good, because they can take some of the weight from the flute. And there's, uh, on several numbers, we get extended uh, piano solos followed by the flute over rhythm, and I, I kind of like that. Both Elena and the Noctambulist, they have that kind of feel. Noctambulist is a little bit slower when it starts than Elena, but then it picks up sort of in the middle. And again, a very long piano solo in the middle with uh, flute over rhythm toward the end. The stuff that doesn't work for me so much, our story, the title cut, feels a lot like elevator music to me. And the main reason is I think it's the bass is electric there. So it has this mild soft jazz funk thing with the flute over. I think there's just enough rhythmic and tempo variation to keep it from being smooth jazz, but it edges close. And for me, that's not a sound I particularly want to hear very often. Maybe the most interesting of the playing by Christian Artman, his flute gets kind of dirty I like it when flute players kind of get a little growly. They get a little Rashawn Roland Kirk in their in their butt. I always love that sound. I don't know how flautists create it. Do you say flautist or flutist? I don't know. I, I've heard flute player. I've heard flautist. I, I, some of it, I think, is vocalizing through the instrument. Uh -huh. I love and it. When some they of do it that. is maybe more of a buzzing or a you know. Yeah. I, I'm not a accomplished enough flautist to tell you how to do that because i can't flautist could just be someone who goes to you know mexican restaurants and eats a lot of flautas i don't know there you go i believe you are one of the more accomplished flautists of your generation i will be soon that was a food joke dude i'm trying to keep it keep coming back no no I, I i'm just thinking you know i haven't been recently because you can't get mexican food around here but i will be 
once, once when you I get, get back, back to the great Midwest, yes. Oh yeah. Uh, and as I as I as I uh, get ready to go on my travels, just a little word of wisdom here to the people who drive the flyover states. The best food in any town, pretty much anywhere in America, no matter what state you're in, if you want to eat food in a proper restaurant, find the Mexican restaurant because it's going to be first or second generation folks who make shit kicker steak fajitas, and it beats the it beats the hell out of McDonald's wherever I go. Whenever I stay someplace, I immediately look for the Mexican restaurant. But back to Christian Hartman and our story. Yeah, so this was okay. It didn't blow me away. I thought it was good. I thought it was enjoyable. It, it slipped into the background more often than I would have liked. And I think Hartman's a good player. It's just, compared to a couple of the other things here, it didn't hold my attention as much. Hmm. Okay. You probably love the hell out of this. Well, it grew on me. I, I think that at mm. first, my, my first listen was kind of quite in the background with friends visiting, and it did not make a good impression there. But once I was able to focus on it, bring up the volume a bit, listen to it in headphones, you know, I realized there's more going on there. There is a, a fairly polished sound to it. Yeah. But he's doing a lot with polyrhythms. It's, it's not all 4-4 four, four by any stretch. No, no, no. The opener is a good example of that because there's tons of almost like modal scale playing over rhythm, and that's really the the, temp, the, the time there is really complicated. I think. Yeah, I some of them I, I you know have not sat down and kind of puzzled out what the meters are, but they are not the usual suspects. I like that. His tone, alto flute is a is a weird beast, and I don't know how often I love to get a breakdown of track by track when he's playing it. I'm, I'm guess i'm assuming fairly often i read that he's focusing more on it but there's this it's just slightly hollow sounding isn't right i mean he's got a good tone but it's just got a weird timbre timber to it and he plays a lot with pitch you know he will kind of hit a note and then kind of dip down and go a little flat and then bring it up he'll kind of roll the tone a bit and it takes a little while i mean that's just the way he he plays the horn but it's a little off-putting at first. I, I just had to kind of get that in my head that this is the way he plays it. You know, it's not like Jackie McLean being sharp, but it's, you know, not absolute miles away. There's this tendency that sometimes he'll, he'll come in a little low or he'll dip down a little low. I, I like the compositions overall. I think there's he's got a decent head for melody. I mean, a lot of them aren't necessarily going to embed themselves in your consciousness. They're not super easy to learn licks, but I, I think they work pretty well. I think the band's excellent. I don't mind the vocal doubling. I agree, you're right. I mean, you might get flashbacks to like Return to Forever or something. Yeah. Bringing up Joe Farrell, who's probably my third favorite flautist. <laughs> you start putting in the pantheon of, of, of flute players. Yeah, there's that. I mean, that doesn't bother me as much. I think you're a little bit more allergic to the 70s than I am, uh, just in, musically or, or kind of, you know, like electric piano or whatever. I, it depends on my mood, but it doesn't necessarily bother me. I, I like the version of Amazing Grace, and, and part of that was I reviewed an album for All About Jazz, led by a guitar player who I liked a lot. There was Mainly it was kind of, I, I think of it as almost acoustic fusion. He played electric occasionally, but the other instruments were acoustic. But he had a guest vocalist. It really brought the session down for me. And I felt like maybe just because I had that in my mind, this example where I felt like Amazing Grace, she didn't oversell it. She didn't overcomplicate it. So it worked for me. It was a pretty straightforward singing. It wasn't showy. And then, as you say, it got that hypnotic groove going. And then the instrument, you know, like the piano player starts really jamming and they get a cycle going. Thank you. 
she just keeps repeating, I was blind, but now I can see over and over again. And it, I just thought, well, you know, this is this is working rather than kind of bringing the album to a screeching halt and making me sad. And so maybe I unfairly liked it because it was in the context with this other record that did not work for me. But yeah, overall, I think it, it took a while for me to kind of warm up to the album as much as I ended up doing. Um, but, and I think part of it is that surface gloss. But, but my feeling is the more you listen to it, the less easy listening it sounds, uh, the more rewarding it gets. I think the real question is, how do you feel about alto flute? You know, who plays it? Henry Threadgill sometimes? I mean, it's just not a common instrument. It's the big brother of the regular concert flute, and you just don't, I mean, you'll run across it, but it's pretty unusual. And, you know, what do you think of his tone? And then you know, if you buy into that, I think you'll like it. But, and of course, you know, if you really want nothing but Cecil Taylor, this is not going to do it for you. I mean, this is a, you know, right. It's, he never gets real far out or something. This is not a atonal album. This is not an aggressive record. But, you know, the cover art with the people in a ring and everything, it, it in some ways, it, it it's almost packaged as something lighter than it is, something more innocuous than it is. You know, it is ultimately not heavy or scary or something or, or abrasive but don't be put off by thinking this is something that's you know i don't know it almost looks like a children's record when you look at the cover you know it's not that i'm just happy to hear that there's another flautist out there who's making good music because i i like the instrument when played well and as you say there's a lot of pitfalls for flautists there aren't that many of them and successful work in the genre is pretty rare so anyway i'd, I'd recommend it but your mileage may vary so do you want to do the other uh 2018 release all right, let's do Royston. Let's do it. I had trouble tracking that information about her. Eventually I realized, okay, this is her debut. And I asked her publicist who didn't respond to me because he thought I was an idiot. Is Shamie Royston, the sister of Rudy Royston. Right. <laughs> and that would have been awkward because she's married to him. Right. But they are a musical force because I, I'm all, once I learned his name, my God, it keeps popping up. I mean, yeah. this man is, is, is heavily, we, we've talked about work where he appears before, and he's just kind of my little Rolodex now of musicians who I am likely to listen to a session if, if, if he's on it. In fact, this this uh, fusion album that I mostly really liked and then the song that went wrong, he's a drummer on that. It's like right. he keeps turning up now. He, he was a drummer on J.D. Allen's Radio Flyer back in episode 140. Oh. He is the drummer in that trio, a very activist there. And I, I'm not sure. My sense is that that may have been one of the places where he kind of made his reputation. Mm. But Rudy Royston is a drummer to look out for. So what did you think of Shamey Royston's brand new release, Beautiful Liar? Well, she's a pianist. Yeah. So as I was saying, uh, I, I, I did research, as I sometimes do before a podcast. I don't always go commando. And <laughs> I went to look for this and... I found this asshole all about jazz has a review. You should read this fucking idiot. Just raves and raves about this. 
Beautiful Liar Never Turns Po-Faced or Pallid. It's a delightful jazz recording by any standard. I mean, what a bastard. Absolutely a bastard. <laughs> so, yes, it was, uh, um, for those who don't know what I'm doing, I'm having a little fun at Pat's expense because Pat is now uh, one of the roster of reviewers. Yay! On All About Jazz. And when I went to look up Shami Royston's Beautiful Liar, I found, just released three days ago, four days ago, the review on All About Jazz by our very own jazz bastard, Patrick. So if you want to see what Patrick looks like, it's not a good picture, but whatever. (laughs) You can see what Pat looks like and you can read, more importantly, you can read Pat's very good writing as he reviews the album. So I sort of feel like this is deeply unfair because you've already written this very eloquent and largely persuasive review about how wonderful this album is. I'm going to I'm not going to disagree with you. I think it's very good. Our mileage varies slightly. I think you like it better than I do. Okay. And some of the things you liked were the things that gave me trouble. So for example, a number that you singled out for praise, Circulo Vicioso, reminds me a lot of a tangled web we weave, and it's busy, major key, happy, peppy, and I just kind I just can't quite get a handle on it. I can't quite I just don't quite get it, I guess, at this point. It's one of those songs that feels like it's always starting. And I don't, it doesn't settle into anything. I'm very groove oriented. It doesn't settle into anything like a groove. It's dead interesting. And I do like it. It's just that I have a hard time kind of wrapping myself around it. There are other songs that I like quite a bit here, though. Of course, the, the cover of Lovely Day is very nice. It's a very good idea to start that song with rhythm and then uh, build from there. The bass player on this album, Yasushi Nakamura, I like him a hell of a lot the bass player gets some uh gets to walk out a little bit a few times oh yeah that's right yeah lovely day is wonderful there's a great bass solo on uh, uplifted heart that i think is fantastic so the bass player here gets gets some lovely features and it's really nice this this benefits from the big boy headphones listening carefully and closely um my favorite cut here actually was uh, beautiful liar the title cut I thought it was fascinating. I loved that song. It has this gorgeous solo piano open before everyone kind of comes in. then it, of course, gets significantly uh, busier. But every time that came on, I just kind of stopped what I was doing to listen to that. Just listen to the piano introduction to that song. I thought it was fantastic. I liked Push, uh, an up-tempo number, very brisk trumpet solo on that, and followed by an urgent and also interesting piano solo there as well. So, so overall, I thought this was great. I like her lines. It's a great tonic after Cecil Taylor. <laughs> to hear someone who's busy but somewhat in it's not out but 
Yin is not a substitute for dull. Uh, she's very quick and inventive and imaginative and goes to surprising places on some of her solos. So I, I like this. I thought it was very good. I just probably don't like it as much as you do based on the review. And let's pimp it again. Pat has a review on All About Jazz of this very album. Right. And I think you like it probably better than I do, which is fine. Tell me why this scratches your happy places. And what are those happy places? And should you be scratched? There you go. And yeah, I've, I've got, I mean, this year especially, it'll probably slow down when I go back to work, but there's there's a number of pieces up there. Been a busy boy, uh, along with editing for that website. You know, I went back, and I, I will say that uh, personnel here, Shami Royston on piano, Jaleel Shaw on alto and soprano saxes, Josh Evans trumpet, Yashushi on bass, Rudy Royston drums, and Rudy, as I said, is rapidly becoming a name I'm looking out for, and if I hear he's on an album now, I'm kind of that there's a notch more likely to look it up and listen to it. I will say Jaleel's intonation is every now and then maybe a little off for me. Is that more on the soprano or the alto? You know, I, I don't know that at this point I'm, it's fresh enough for me to tell you. Okay. And it's not a huge problem. I like him. I, I don't know that he's the strongest link there. Overall, this is a really strong session. And again, constantly humbling to, to learn about these musicians that I'm just not aware of. Shamey has toured with, I believe, Tia Fuller, the saxophone player. And I think maybe whether she played with Tia with Beyonce or whether Tia just did. Anyway, there's a, kind of a, a mafia there that she's at least tangentially related to. And then, of course, she's married to Rudy, who is a, a jazz musician who suddenly seems to be appearing on every other album I hear about. Yeah, I, I think what I liked about this was the smooth with the pungent. In other words, that this album... It was packaged in a way that led me to believe it was maybe going to be Quiet Storm. Yeah. And it's nicely recorded. It is, they're not elbows out. It is uh, very pleasant to listen to. I think you could play it at the background of any party, and no one would be shocked or offended unless they just hate jazz. Why are you inviting them to your parties then? Think about that. But at the same time, it, it does start to compel. And I mean, what interesting me about the record is they put it in the background I was doing something else and I realized some of her riffs were sticking with me her songs were kind of forcing my attention and that was exciting because it seemed like exactly the kind of album that wasn't going to do that right coming back to it weird I don't know whether maybe all about jazz has now given up the star rating system and had it I, I no, think it's, it's still they have you as giving it five stars right and that's not something I do lightly was I a little too enthusiastic? Maybe. Maybe it was four and a half. I mean, I, I don't I don't pull that trigger very often. I think he may have given up on it. I think the recent reviews, they haven't brought that up because he was getting frustrated. Everybody gives everything five stars, which is not something I typically do. But And then, of course, what does that mean anymore? And It's tough. We, we have a, It's kind of a varied crew that submits reviews to that site. Right. Mostly very accomplished. But, but I mean, just, you know, and, and of course, everybody's uh, writing in English, but for many people, that's their second or third or fourth language, and others, of course, it's their first. Or at least it was until the drugs kicked in. Varies from person to person. So that was, I think, the main thing, is that she seemed like somebody that was able to write interesting licks and also somebody who knew how to build a performance with fairly simple elements that nonetheless created excitement, building tension. She reminded me very tangentially of Carla Bley, not in the sense of humor, not in the world, not in her cultural references. Blaze likes to nod towards the Europeans. We get Bill Withers here. Both I find equally cool. Yeah. But somebody that can take 
to me, the great arrangers are often the ones who take very basic building blocks and then make something exciting out of them. The example par excellence would be like Duke Ellington on New Orleans Suite, as I've gone on about many times, where a song might not have a lot of convoluted ideas. It may have one or two riffs, but they're compelling riffs, and they go somewhere, and they stick in your head, rather than just a whole bunch of elaboration and ornamentation at the end of it. You don't feel like much has been accomplished. I'm not going to say everything Stan Kent never did. You can say that if you want. But some arrangers I'll listen to, and I'm just like, okay, this is this is really impressive. I bet you got an A in your classes, but it doesn't add up to much. And so I, I felt like she had that gift, and I really liked the band. I liked her playing. Again, it was one of these things thinking, well, she's a good arranger and a writer, but I bet she's not a very interesting soloist. And then once or twice, you know, she'd pull out something out of the trick bag that, like, I was not expecting. It was not the place I thought her line was going to go. And so that was pleasing to me. Rudy gives every album at least an extra half to one star because <laughs> I like Rudy. I, I, I sometimes wonder, I think you're probably more tuned into and smarter about drummers than I am. I mean, drummers really have to kind of like grab me by the shoulder to get my attention. But I'm like, Rudy always makes me pay attention, but he never annoys me. And that's like a miraculous combination. It's like he's busy, he's doing things, but they always seem musical. And it's like, I appreciate him, but I never feel like he's overpowering or showboating. To get me to kind of focus in on that, my theory is you have to be pretty good. Because otherwise, I notice drummers who are being annoying or drummers who are like excellent, like let's say a Mel Lewis type. I may never be aware of what they're doing, even though they're making the album better. And if I think about it, I see how they are. Rudy's in that special third category. Somebody I do notice, but I'm always happy I do. So that, that's the reason. I, 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 strong, I mean, it's a, it's a modern jazz release for 2018 by somebody that I never heard of. I'm excited. You know, this is hopefully not going to be your best album, but uh, I like what she's up to. And it's just, again, it's a sense of, okay, bad on me. You know, I kind of think, well, how seriously do I take Tia Fuller if she's touring with Beyonce? Apparently fairly seriously. You know, how seriously do I take Shami Royston? I should take her seriously. I should ignore the kind of airbrushed cover art and the title, which sounds to me like a quiet storm jam, and just listen to the music and then realize, nope, she's really good. Tell the kids at home what you, you we use this phrase all the time, but I'm not sure everyone knows when we talk about Quiet Storm. Get close well, to the Well, it's, like it's a 70s or 80s. It was a, at one point in, in, in the far distant past when radio stalked the earth and spread its waves everywhere. It was a format. I tend to think of it as largely African-American music that maybe had a light jazz element, but mainly was about kind of getting your groove on in an adult, sophisticated way between the hours of, say, 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. And it involved men with deep voices getting very That's right. close to the microphone. That's Go right. Bearskin rugs, fireplaces, <laughs> body oils. Yeah, I, you know, so... One essential example would be the character Venus Flytrap from WKRP in Cincinnati for anyone who still watches old TV shows. Yeah, I was going to say, we're going to explain something old with something older. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're going to realize <laughs> that they explain Quiet Storm. It's but, I mean, that's, that, that character is exactly what we're talking about. That sort of... Yeah. Sexy, resonant voice. Yeah. In a sense, well-made music by people of talent who are trying and succeeding in making music that is meant for the background and or getting it on. Yeah. But aren't trying to kind of push your musical boundaries. And what I like about this album is that largely, though some of those time signatures might get your back out of joint, it could be employed for getting it on, but... Are you saying you can't make love to this album? Is that what you're saying, Patrick? I'm saying 7-4, yeah, I just, it's, <laughs> things start to go wrong. Patrick, 
Patrick. You need to put some spice in your love life. You need some 7-4. You need some 7-4. You need some 5-3. That is not even a meter. I don't know what I just said. Anyway. I've been going to <laughs> Swedish Jam for nine months, and <laughs> half of Swedish Jam is about being better at sex. But it's always four to the floor EDM. I mean, it's like, okay, you got me. You made me put a weight on my baby maker, and I'm lifting it in the air, thrusting my hips. <laughs> I know what you dirty Swedes are up to. But yeah, it's saying, always the four four time. For for your partner's enhanced pleasure, seven four is the way to go. <laughs> yeah, apparently not Sweden. <laughs> I, I meant to mention something here to go back to being serious for a second. Dissimulate. I also wanted to single that song out for praise. It sounds kind of monkish at the beginning, and it has a riff that sounds a hell of a lot like Now's the Time. I love the start of that song. It's very sort of puckish and fun. And it's not Now's the Time, but it, 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 you know, the riff at the beginning reminds me of that. And it reminded me to say something else about the album in general, which is that Jill Shaw, I've, I've heard him on other things, and, and he's fine. But it's Josh Evans who takes the takes the honors here as the, as the sideman of note. Uh, the trumpet playing on this throughout is urgent and important and and really good jill shaw is a fine player but this this isn't he's not the he's not the star backup man here it's definitely josh evans on trumpet with shamey on piano or sort of the featured players in in my memory as i think about which tracks yeah. I like best well i mean jaleel does a great job and to my mind he is the fifth out of these five musicians and he's still really good. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's just a fucking strong group. And yeah. again, I just like what ex- I, I tend to, to like conceptualists, maybe a little. I, I'm sometimes a little bit weak to, to people who are just amazing players. Sometimes I, I, you know, like a Phil Woods, who there's no way around it. Amazing player. Don't always like where he's going with it, but you cannot deny the guy's jobs. And. On this album, I mean, you've got, I think, a, a, a really interesting mind at the helm here in what Shamey's coming up with, but you've also got a crack band. It's really well played. And again, I'm just excited because it's like, never heard of Shamey, barely heard of Rudy, but now, you know, they're both on my radar. And it's just like, okay, great. Somebody else that if I see this name pop up again, it's a no-brainer. I want to hear it. That doesn't happen all the time. And I think, you know, with Christian, I, I'm going to I want to listen to his. He's got a previous release on Sunnyside. I'm going to have my ears open. It's always exciting to find out about a new musician you know, whose work I like enough that I don't just admire it. I just don't appreciate it, which I do of almost everything I hear. But I like it enough personally that I want to hear more. That's exciting. Uh, where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk about evil? Or you want to talk about Black Flower? Black Flower. Okay.
So this is a group that, again, as I've said before, I saw live in Malmö, Sweden. It was a different experiencing in them live. There it was a, a the leader composer was on many different reeds, saxophones, Barry, alto. He played a number of flutes, some of which I could not identify. They seemed to be of a non-Western origin. And then the trumpet player with him, I thought was a more interesting improviser. And then they had electric bassist, a guy playing drums, and then a keyboard player. And, the, and I actually reviewed this for All About Jazz. And I said the keyboard player wasn't that interesting, but he could make really good faces. Mm-hmm. I think he was as good at that as Keith Jarrett. He was not as good a piano player as Keith Jarrett, but he made good faces. And that you know, was a live group. They did get a little bit into the spacier stuff. There's a lot of slam and rhythms and a lot of scalar jazz. Boy, this album, as an album, is an album, right? It's more of a studio creation than anything we've talked about for a little while. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Black Flower's Abyssinian Afterlife. So I, I think Abyssinian key, Afterlife. Yeah, I think the key word here is going to be distortion. If you like <laughs> distortion, you are going to love this album. And the fact of the matter is, I really like distortion. So <laughs> I really like this. This is my favorite release from from this week. There is a mild sameness initially. The programming, I think, could be a little better. But... On this album, they do a thing, and they do it really well, and I happen to like this thing. Your mileage may vary. If you don't like this thing, you're not going to like this album. So <laughs> so there's, there's really only four players in this band, although there's a guitarist sort of brought in a hired gun, I guess, who's not a regular part of this quartet. So yeah, Nathan Deems, Dames on saxophone, John Birdsong on, it says cornet, but it sounds like a trumpet to me sometimes. I don't know. Simon Seegers on drums and Philip Vandebril on bass. So you basically got two horns and uh, drums and bass. And they get a lot of uh, fun sounds. There's a lot of uh, processed sound here. I especially like when they do this on number after number. They often will get into it. This is very groove-based. It's very riff-based. So they'll often fall into a kind of groove here. The rhythm section will. uh, The drums and bass will. And then the horn players will, will solo into that or over that. But what's interesting to me is that the cornet and the sax take turns augmenting the rhythm section. And I especially love it. It really it scratches a happy place for me when Deems goes to Barry sax and gets it all fuzzed out and doubled <laughs> bass line. I fucking love that. I just I can't get enough of that. I think it's awesome. Every time it happens, and it happens a fair amount of the time, um, the second cut upwards is a really good example of the sax and, and the bass kind of both kind of fuzzy and doubled. I don't understand the personnel so much because to me it sounds like there's a bunch of keyboards here from time to time and I can't tell what that is. I don't I'm just is that the guitarist chiming in and I'm mishearing it? I can't tell. No, no, no. There is a keyboard player, Wooter Haste. Okay. I, and I was, there were definitely was it was a quintet when I saw him. Okay. And 
he was, for me, musically speaking, the most minor of the group, but he's definitely there. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There are keyboard washes as well as guest spots from an electric guitarist. So. Yeah, and then and some of the keyboard solos come in here and do the same thing. So the keyboards will come in when the cornet or the sax are doing the riff with the drums and bass and you get the right. key. So it's an interesting variation on what you normally get. You normally would get rhythm and then horn soloing, but oftentimes in this band, one of the horns will reinforce the riff that the bass and drums are playing over which then the other front man and the keyboards will solo. And then the guitar player comes in here on a few of these as well. There's a couple of change of pace numbers that happen almost right in the middle, uh, winter and star fishing. And I thought, given the the similarity of the first four numbers, which are all soloing over sort of sort of grooves, these jams, it would have been nice to change the programming slightly and slip winter in after, say, upwards, just to, to vary. Right, yeah, break it up a bit more. The programming a little bit, because suddenly getting these two slower bits was really striking and i was like are we on a new album because winter starts out it's just very quiet uh drum kit very steady groove with a flute solo over it and it's lovely and i was like okay that would have been nice in between all of the other dun, 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 you know it would have been cool to kind of mix that in and then when we get back to uh the legacy of prester john which is i don't know seventh or eighth cut we're back to groove riff land with really fuzzy berry and what I like about this one is the the cornet or trumpet. I keep wondering because he gets a really round sound sometimes. It sounds more trumpety to me, but what do I know? He almost sounds like a trombone on this album. He's on this cut. The cornet player, uh, Birdsong, he has a lovely muted solo over that roof with the with the berry and the bass and drums, and then he goes open, and my heart sings in happiness when that happens. It sounds like a, a robust, ripe, fruity trombone to me. I know it's not, but it's it's just such a such a nice moment in that song. It's a beautiful solo. This was a lot of fun, and this would have fit quite well on our party jazz podcast. I thought this this scratches all my happy places for the most part. The uh, again, I lost it. Um, that one's a keyboard riff over a bass and drum groove with just little fills from the berry and the cornet, and then it goes into kind of a rock feel at the end which was interesting and then abyssinia afterlife the final cut is like it's a slow kind of stately riff again and this time it's just the keyboard soloing over to me it's like they've got a template that they use on almost every song but there's enough variations on it and there's enough surprises with with not just settling for strict rhythm pushing out that groove for the front men to solo over but actually having the, the front men serve almost as rhythm players on the album there's enough variation there that it just constantly keeps me interested, even if the template on seven out of nine songs is the same. I like <laughs> it a lot. And it's short. It's, I, I, this just uh, hit all the buttons for me. I really like this a lot. It's my favorite album of the week. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't rate it that highly for myself, but it, it as I said, I, my kind of a encounter with this record was frequently kind of what happened. <laughs> so it would go by, it's kind of short, and I'm like, okay, what happened? And I think it's because there's echo, there is, as you say, distortion, there's a sense of some manipulation of the sound. Sometimes the textures get pretty dense. You're right that this is, it's not bitches brew. No. But there is more of a sense of a collective kind of simmering and then voices peeking out of it rather than background foreground. And as you say, sometimes foreground becomes background when the horns riff. I think part of it is, is that our leader composer there, Nathan Dames or Deems, he's very riff based. I don't know that he's got an ability to kind of craft compelling melodies. And both he and the keyboard player tend to be very scalar in their improvisations, where I feel like they, they, they pick a scale and then everything they play is in that scale. Right. It's, a, it's an old thing. If you can do it, you're not as excited by it. It's like, that's something I could do. You know, it's like, just tell me what the seven notes are that are legal and I'll flip between them and come up with some kind of line. But there's a kind of predictability about it or a sense of it's kind of hard to create tension or release if the rule is we're playing in this mode of the scale and then the solo's in that scale. Well, okay, it all fits, but where do you get the tension? Where do you get the, the structure of it? Or is it just more ornamental? Now, Birdsong on trumpet or cornet, I cannot remember having seen him, what the horn was he was playing. It certainly strikes me more live. This album, I, I, I had trouble picking out his contributions more. But live, I, I felt like he was a better soloist. So in a sense, as part of it, if I'm listening to this with jazz ears, I don't always pick out, there isn't so much a clear sense of foreground or background. But unlike Bitches Brew, if you finally get a really good, clear, late-generation remix where you can hear into the mix and hear what's going on, you can kind of sort out what's going on sonically and the various contributions to it. Here, it, it was enough echo, enough murk that I really sometimes had trouble. I mean, I, I got the sense of the gestalt, but if the interest is what's burbling back and forth between the people kind of creating the texture, I had trouble tracing it sometimes. That said, yeah, there's energy here. I, I like their basic template like you do. I think it's fun music. Uh, they're fun live. As I said in my review of their live act on All About Jazz, if the thought of a contact microphone taped to a bass drum frightens you, stay away. You know, they will. The other thing about this album is it has some serious levels of bass energy occasionally. It's almost dub levels, right? Where you just get a bass such as nature has never known. <laughs> And, you know, that's cool in a way. I mean, it, it's I'm, I'm coming from a, a background of somebody who began in and continues to love much rock and pop. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's a cool texture. So I've got no problem with that. But, yeah, this is a it is a record. It is a studio artifact. Whereas when we listen to Red Barrett, their album is more or less their live show. Yeah. yeah. In other words, it, it's not manipulating what's going on in the least. This is more of a studio artifact, and I'm not quite sure at this time in 2014, we've got a master of the studio here. We've got somebody who's experimenting with it. I mean, th this music, more than I think the albums we covered on the Party Jazz episode, there are touches of, I don't know if the Grateful Dead's the right hmm. thing to bring up, but just psychedelic music, uh, space music you know, altered consciousness music. I mean, there is a, a little bit of the, of the lysergic in what they're doing. 
much more so than the New Orleans-based stuff, which is always very much feet on the ground. Or Red Barrett, for that matter, which is a joyful music, but not trying to take you to another plane of consciousness. <laughs> it, it's about the here and the now and the physical and, and you know, and, and rhythm and being in one place. This is kind of a little trippier. But yeah, I liked it. And I'm glad I was able to track a, down a record by them. And I was a little bit, you know, surprised that they're a little bit more ambitious and, and strange in the studio than they are live. I don't know. I'm on the fence about whether I want to track down more of their stuff, but you know, I'm at least keeping them in mind. And certainly, if you get a chance to see Black Flower, I'd recommend it. You know, they're a scuffling band. They're talking about. I can't remember whether it was they're having a problem at the the hostel they were staying at or something. But, you know, you got the sense that these guys are young men in a van going from place to place, <laughs> you know? which is cool. God bless them. And they aren't. Uh, it's a harder road to hold than if they were. I don't know. DJs or something. I, I don't know what the the current 21st century equivalent of the old alternative band would be, but you know, they're, they're it's music that's trying to reach, uh, trying to have a populist thrust, but it's you know still challenging and there's no vocals. It, it's it's instrumental music. It's, it's party music of a kind. So yeah, it's worth listening to. At least try streaming it. See what you think of it. And again, a band we're seeing live. Now we come to, this is a musician that I'd heard of. I think I read a review of this album. And what kind of sold the deal for me was when I found out that uh, Jeff Parker, the guitar player, was in his group. It's a drummer named Ted Sirota, or Sirota. And his album, Ted Sirota's Rebel Souls versus the Forces of Evil. And Rebel Souls is the name of his, his band. Right. His, his group is Rebel Souls. Though the personnel changes, as they often do in a, on a jazz groups, but Noel Coopersmith on bass, Rob Mazurek on cornet, and we've heard about him. He's like in the Chicago underground trio and duo. He's been a mover shaker. He used to be in the Chicago scene. He's moved away since then, but he's been around for a while. Ted, as I said, is a, is a drummer. Jeff Parker on guitar. And Jeff Bradfield on tenor, alto, saxophones, and bass clarinet. And then Kevin Kaiser or Kieser, probably Kaiser on tenor saxophone and clarinet. So two reed players and a cornet there in the front row, along with a uh, guitar, bass, drum, rhythm section. So thoughts on the forces of evil and how to fight them. Well, first thing, I wonder if I've run into Ted Serrata at some point in my life. He was born in downstate Illinois. He's a little bit younger than we are, just by a couple of years. But he grew up in Flossmoor, which was the next town over from where I grew up. And huh. their high school would have played my high school many times in, in sport events. And so I can remember seeing high school jazz concerts where the different local the different high schools um, would would perform. If he was in the jazz band in high school, I may have seen him mm. when he was a kid. How weird is that? Yeah, and he's played all over with tons of people in Chicago. He's part of that scene. So he's played with uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel, right? And uh, a whole bunch of other people 
in the Chicago scene. So he's kind of known, I guess, he's part of that. I don't know if he's as firmly ensconced in that generation of players that we talk a lot about, but he definitely is a member of the Chicago scene. I wanted to like this a lot better, I have to say. I do <laughs> I do like it. I do like it. But I like it when it's more frantic and, and open and funky. Then it, it feels a little buttoned down. And I guess, especially with Rob Mazurek on trumpet, I kind of thought this was going to be something else than what it turned out to be. Uh, I had a hard time connecting to a lot of the songs here. My favorite cuts are, in, I guess this is Indonesian. I don't know what language this is. Impengu Dek Bengakai. I liked that number. I liked Tubby, uh, probably the best of everything here. Jeff Parker's guitar is rather understated, I thought. As it so often is, right? You know, he's a cool yeah, cat. He's a cool cat, but I also, I don't know. I feel so disappointed in not liking this better. I wanted, when I saw the players in Chicago scene, I thought this was going to be a little more up-tempo, a little more energetic. And it's and it's not that as much as I thought it was going to be. So, like, Tightrope's a good example, right? I think that All About Jazz person or someone somewhere singles out Parker's solo for a kind of louche beauty and it, it kind of left me cold I, I didn't care that much I like that number for the clarinet work on it I think that's pretty cool but yeah I say stuff about this because I'm just going to sound like I'm shitting on it by not liking it as much as as I wanted to and I don't mean to diss the album all the players here are good and I like them a lot but this didn't this didn't scratch my 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 itches at all or very rarely and and maybe i just need to listen to i've listened to some of the cuts now on this album 10 times uh, i listened to this album the most of the ones this week and i, I still don't feel like I, I still don't i don't i don't feel comfortable with it i like it but I, I don't love it at all tell me how you felt about it or what you thought you know i'm pretty close to where you are i the same deal in that I thought, well, this is, it's on the name label, N-A-I-M. Mm-hmm. And I believe they're loosely affiliated with the uh, stereo manufacturer in England. Mm. I'm not sure whether, you know, in other words, there's a name brand of audio equipment over there. And I sometimes audiophile uh, manufacturers will also get involved at the production end and release records to kind of the, the follow their standards of good sound or whatever. Yeah, I was. I liked the cast. I liked the idea. I thought the title was striking, and then the album seemed to lack focus for me. You know, a couple of the tunes. I mean, Tubby is kind of like a dub song. It's yeah, fun, yeah. but it's it's kind of out of the blue. You know, it's not like anything else on there. It's not like this is an album about. I don't know whether you want to call it dub or I. I, I don't know my genres in that area well enough to to label it beyond that. But it's the only song of its kind whatsoever on the record. And so it's this weird detour. And then there's a couple tunes that sound to me a little bit like, you know, an attempt at getting that blue note sound of the 60s. Mm. Becky's Bash, maybe? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the names, I, I don't know that I've got them li- linked up. There's some hot playing on, on I don't, I don't want to make it sound like there's no hot right. playing here. There is. Becky's Bash, that's the song I listen to the most. In, in close second to me, to Tubby, and the sax playing on there is hot. Also on Tubby, and is it Tubby or Tightrope? Tightrope has a fiendish trumpet solo that I really like. It's just, I, I, I thought it was always going to be hotter than it was. Yeah, and, and you know, this is 2000, and I don't know how he's developed. I mean, my sense here is we've got somebody who is maybe not the most gifted leader, and it's not, which is different from being a gifted musician, in that I don't know that I feel a strong vision for this album. I don't know that the compositions stick with me that well. I don't know that listening to this, I can imagine certain albums as having the subtitle versus the forces of evil. Maybe Cecil Taylor versus the forces of evil. <laughs> yeah. If we just unleashed him on them, they'd be all gone now. But, yeah, I didn't feel like there was a theme about that either. The first tune is called Grendel. Yeah. I associate that with a guy who gets his arm ripped off by Beowulf. But nothing in that tune makes me think of a a monster that goes around uh, killing uh, people. So it's not like the theme kind of unlocked musical inspiration for him that that kind of slotted. And I'm not saying I wanted a concept album or something, you know, I... We'll talk about that a little bit, uh, God help us all. But but it just, yeah, it seems diffused. Uh, the performers are all fine. You know, Parker, again, is somebody who I love to death, but is the lead, he's not an excitable boy. He's a very cool dude. At his best, I really enjoy him, but he's, Jim Hall looked like Jimi Hendrix sometimes <laughs> in terms of expressivity. He, he might not be the best choice here because there is some hot playing on this. I feel like I'm sitting on an album that I think is actually pretty good. It's it's maybe I'm suffering from does it go to eleven syndrome? They're at they're at like seven, and and I guess I wanted them at nine, but it's a really good seven. It's really good. It is. It is right. I mean, again, fine players. Uh, this is not a bad record by any stretch. Nope. It's just that I don't get the sense of the contexts here unlocking potential in the players. I don't get the sense of this combination of players necessarily unlocking possibilities within one another. It's a recording that doesn't feel like they catch fire. Right. Maybe exactly. live they would. I don't know. I mean, everyone here is awfully good. Right. I mean, the band keeps changing shape. And, and of course, these guys are playing on each of those projects. And it may be that one of my favorite records from the Chicago scene has Ted on as a drummer. You know, I don't. It's just that, yeah, I would agree that this record and I was. I remember reading good things about it dimly. God, good Lord, this would have been 18 years ago. I mean, when it came out, probably in a downbeat review, probably 18 years ago. And it was just kind of in the back of my mind. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. And I thought, well, hey, Jeff Parker, like him, let's see what this is about. And then I just kind of slotted it into the show today, but I had not spent much time with it at that point. But so, again, not a bad record. In some ways, I think the most diffuse for me, probably the one I like least on this show I definitely like it. I definitely like it better than um, our story. I would. I would. My order would be. Yeah. Okay. My order would be Abyssinian, Afterlife, Beautiful Liar, this, and then our story. But all if there's, right. if mean, they're stock, I'm records. buying all of them. It's just sure, sure. This one, yeah. maybe because I had familiarity with several of the names, I had higher expectations. Maybe it's that. Give because you know I didn't have any expectations for Black Flower or Shami Royston or right. Christian Arm. I didn't know a damn thing about any of them. So listening to right. them, I was pleasantly, happily surprised. Whereas with this group, I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I know these guys, and I thought it was going to be more than it turned out to be, which it still 
definitely very good. To me, I think our story as a record, as a experience, uh, I think under an hour, around an hour, knows what it's trying to be. Now, you may not like it, but I, I feel confident that the Christian has a uh, a plan for those 10 songs, and they kind of fit in an aesthetic. This feels more like experimentation to me. He's looking around for different modes for the band to be in. But again, yeah, no, don't kick any of these records out of bed. Oh, you know, not at all. all. They may kick me out of bed. I don't know. They're like, what the hell are you doing in my bed? Get out. But, but you know, they're, they're all good records. It was a happy time. And, you know, I, I want to stress again, I actually enjoyed and I'm glad that we were able to talk about Cecil's music last time. It is demanding. But I was ready. You know, I wasn't thinking, well, now let's do some more Albert Eiler. You know, <laughs> you know I was like, maybe take a little break and do something more in Pat's Blanket Ford Zone. I will say that of the albums, I'm willing to bet that this is the one that, as I continue to listen to it, or if I came back to it, I prob- this one has the highest further upside for me, I think. There you go. Yeah, the most to learn about. Yeah, get. yeah because I feel very much like I get what Black Flower is up to. I get Abyssinian Afterlife. I like it. I get Beautiful Liar. I like it. I get Our Story. I like it a little less. I like but this. Yeah, I, don't of, you know I don't quite get it. I don't quite get it. And I have a feeling... In time, I would like it more than I like it now. I think it's a grower. Cool. A grower. Sounds good. pop matters on your mind nope i'm in grading hell so no i'm i'm in i'm in the land of way too many blue books and essays okay. whatever pop music i'm listening to is a mental amphetamine to keep me awake as i slog through the final <laughs> the final few thousand miles of desert till the oasis of get the fuck out of town He's got the he's got the blue book blues people. I got the blue book blues. Yeah, I need up tempo. I'm so swamped with grading. I couldn't go and see Go Go Penguin, who were in town on Wednesday. Oh. I know. I just there was no way I could go, and I had that on my calendar forever. And I, as it got closer, I was like, I can't afford an entire evening of pleasure at this point if I won't leave town anytime soon. So yeah, sadly, I had to pass up Go Go Penguin in a nice small venue too. It would have been a really intimate setting. I just couldn't do it. It's always bad when you can't afford an evening of pleasure. Sometimes it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes will do, but it's, yeah. I think we define evening a little bit differently, but okay. You got to budget the best you can. So real quickly, uh, Brian Ferry's In Your Mind is not his best album, but if you're drunk, it still rocks. And Paul Thompson, the drummer of Roxy Music and those early albums, I like him. I do too. And he appears in some of these tracks. And I was listening to it thinking, that's got to be Paul Thompson. No one quite hits the skins the way he He's does. He's a loud motherfucker. Have you ever heard uh, the, the band Concrete Blonde? Heard of them. Uh, they only had one well-known album called The Bloodletting, um, which is basically an extended album about vampirism. It's a rock album. And it's, you know, it's just <laughs> okay. goth vampirism. But, uh, you know, it's the, the, what's the last, what's the song? The Sky is a Beautiful garden tonight it's weird song all these songs about blood and shit anyway female vocalist and 
unmistakable uh, Paul Thompson on drums. God bless him. Yeah. I like Paul Thompson. I do too. I did listen to the Merle Wagner album you mentioned oh. last time when the Cellar Children see the light of day. I'd forgotten. I, I spotified it. Then I was trying to remember the name of the artist. So I was Googling Cellar Children or something, not remembering that I could just look at my previously played list on Spotify. And it brought up the story of this Joseph Fritzel who kept his daughter in a cellar for 20 years, raping her and had several incestuous uh, children with her. No. I'm, I'm absolutely, I mean, this, this, that's gotta be what inspired right, this. Yeah. It was kind of, I'd for, forgotten, but it's like, my God, it's the whole, cause he it, basically, he lured her down there, said, I need help putting in a door. Well, that was like the seventh door in his dungeon. Mm. And so he had her help put it in then locked her behind it, kept her down there, told she and her children at various times that like if they touched the door, it was electrified and would kill them or he would kill them with gas if they tried to escape. And like, uh, anyway, that's my guess. I, you know, I enjoyed it. My theory is, is that right now as an acoustic guitar player, she's not quite interesting enough to hold my attention for even 30 minutes. I, I just wish there's a little bit more going on there. You know, I recently listened to Nick Drake's Pink Moon and whatever you think of Drake, the guitar playing on that album is so fucking gorgeous. Yeah. It's just, wonderful i mean even if he never sang on it it would be an incredible album and you know this was okay also especially her because what happens with spotify is you've listened to a record and it gets through it it just keeps going down its list and so in this case it's going to go it always goes chronologically back in time so it went to her debut album and there are moments there where she sounds a little bit like one of your favorite singers of all time joanna newsom so I don't, not a lot, but there is that little girl. See, I didn't, I didn't hear that. And if I had, I probably would have run screaming. So I was, I was, ta- I was taken with the fucked up lyrics, I think. They are. I mean, I, I guess the thing with that, and we're, I'm going to get a more extreme example in just a second. I, I felt like with this album, it's like, okay, if I ever don't take her absolutely seriously, this whole thing is going to become ridiculous. Right. I think I mostly did, but it, she really is. It's like, okay. I'm this Q20-something strumming on a guitar telling you about the bleakest examples of humanity. If, it, if at any moment I feel like she doesn't fully comprehend it, I'm just going to like, everything is lost because it's all based on that. I mean, there's no humor. There's no layers to it. It's just girls singing about really horrible things with an acoustic guitar. So, you know, I, I don't know. But it was interesting. I'm glad I heard it. I Right now, I'm not... Maybe album three will be for me. God knows what that'll be about. Probably something else really creepy. But the real centerpiece here, and I may include a full review with examples after this for, for only those foolhardy enough to listen past the break. I learned about the existence of this CD in a science fiction bookstore that had an entire bookshelf devoted to H.P. Lovecraft. Now, that not only included his works and works based on his works, but, you know, Cthulhu plushies, etc. <laughs> the man died in poverty. I just find it hilarious now <laughs> that there are. There's a Dr. Seuss version of The Call of Cthulhu, all done in really pretty decent Seussian verse <laughs> and drawn in his style. I'm like, really? Okay. But there was a rock opera there called The Dreams of the Witch House, subtitled A Lovecraftian Rock Opera. And so I did listen to that on Spotify. I don't know the names of the artists involved because there were no artists involved. I I recommend that everyone listen to this once. Uh, it is amazing. I sent you, and you probably have not listened to the track as a thaw. <laughs> no, 
I saw, I have not listened to I want the whole thing, you know, based on this recommendation. The question I have for you is, can it replace The Damned Phantasmagoria as the best bad album of all time? Oh, my God. It makes that look like Abbey Road. Oh, really? oh my God. Oh my so God. For the kids at home, just so they don't know, The Damned is a, a punk band from England, and they recorded a kind of goth album called Phantasmagoria, and basically no idea was thrown out. And so they make this sort of weird Edgar Allan Poe scary album, except Anything they thought was a good idea, they decided, yes, that's a good idea. Should this song suddenly change meters and have a glockenspiel? Why, yes, it should. No, no, the next album they released was called Anything. Right. And that's when they really did, because you know, that's a piece of crap. It's like, do we, you know, can we have a trumpet solo in the middle of this rock song? Why, yes, we can. Oh, absolutely. Let's hire a symphony well, orchestra. So it's an incredibly bad album. And this, you're saying, makes that look good. Oh, my God. Now, Phantasmagoria is a brilliant album. But, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, this is, it was, like, sponsored by the Lovecraft Society. So oh, they take one of his most convoluted and badly written stories and do a very faithful adaptation of it as a, quote-unquote, rock opera. Dear me. And, wow. Well, I want the whole wow. thing. I want to hear the whole thing. So this sounds... This sounds yeah, well, you can just sign up for... And it, it, there's narration. So there's this guy narrating what happened to his friend. And the best I can describe it is, so imagine the South Park guys are doing an imitation of Blue Oyster Cult collaborating with Boston, doing an album about spooky math. Because that's what this is about. It's about a guy that's studying spooky math and then finds out about other dimensions and, and may or may not help. Like you do. <laughs> that's what happens yeah, when he's studying math. <laughs> I just, just if you listen to Asathoth by itself, oh my God. There's a whole thing with like the deeper the voice, the scarier the voice. And, and my son and I were playing a game called like Darksiders. And we realized that if the voice gets too deep, though, there's a point past which it just sounds like flatulence. <laughs> and then it's no longer spooky. <laughs> it's just a talking fart. <laughs> and of course, the great thing is, is that they're really, it is... It is outlining this convoluted, stupid story. It's not, again, in his top 50 works. And one great lesson that they absolutely ignore is, is that feminine rhymes are always intrinsically funny, right? right. Feminine yeah. rhyme is where you rhyme a multisyllabic word with another multisyllabic word. So at one point, the the narrator of the song sings, Reality, I always thought it had finality. Oh, God. But now I doubt it's actuality oh no <laughs> and anyway the other great thing is its score on amazon is 4.5 stars because of course the only people who had listened to it are already members of the lovecraft <laughs> society and they're like it's great it's it, it follows the story very closely except you know the evil witch instead of being a, an old hag is, is clearly some hot girl in black leather right but Anyway, so yeah, I will probably do a full workup of this uh, with clips. Wow. Yeah, you should you should listen to it. I'm sure eventually I'm going to buy a compact disc of it. But be warned, I mean, there is, every song is interspersed with narration by the kind of reedy sounding, uh, nervous narrator a la Lovecraft. Nice. To a priest. Okay. 
And of course, all Lovecraft stories, not a single one of them, of the hundreds of pages he wrote, have anything approaching any kind of sexual interest of any kind. Right. So I just he's absolutely just could not give a shit about boys and girls. And so they, they have to make the kind of witch a little sexy because, you know, it's a rock opera, right? You know, you gotta, but for a while I realized it was making, cause it, it has all these gestures from rock, but it completely erases their meaning and emotional impact. And it makes them silly. And I realized this is completely sapping my faith in rock and roll and music in general and life. And then I realized, and Lovecraft was a nihilist. I mean, this is the perfect rock opera because it really does make you stop believing in God. Uh. And then I was cured. I, I listened some to the King Chronicles and um, God, you know, I forgot what a good rock band the Kinks are. I mean, you, you tend to think of Ray Davies' tender Waterloo Sunset stuff. And I love those ballads. But if you just listen to the King Chronicles, which every person should own, if nothing else, by the Kinks, they're just a good rock band. Wow. Even the late stuff that was kind of pandering... It's like, this is good stuff. And so it, it reaffirmed my faith. And I was nihilist no longer, at least concerning music. And that concludes episode 142 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can reach us at mike at jazzbastard.com or pat at jazzbastard.com. You could drop us a line on Facebook, or if you'd like, you can contact me at allaboutjazz. The podcast can be downloaded from www.jazzbaster.com, from Apple Podcasts. It's also available on Stitcher, and you can now stream us from Mixcloud. Along with all those options, there is a monthly summary on All About Jazz, so consume this product however you would like. On further consideration, I decided that the Dreams in the Witch House rock opera, based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, requires two men to discuss and so i'm going to ask mike to help me out with a dissection of that particular creature later on however if you stay tuned we'll have a brief foodie segment for you after this podcast concludes tune in next time our plan is to have glenn kreitzer the leader of a big band based in new york that plays music in the style of the 30s both covers and originals and he's got a new album out called ain't it grand and we plan to talk with him about it. Till next time, take care. And the flesh is so fancifully fried It's not succulent, tasty or kind It's death for no reason And death for no reason And the cart that you cart with a smile It is murder Well, I have, to, I have to say, I had dinner recently with, I have friends who are committed vegans, and I have to say, whenever I go over to their place for dinner, the food is fucking sensational. It's not enough to get me to give up animals or dairy, but it's enough to make me feel like if suddenly... A tragedy occurred and all animals and dairy were no longer available there would still be good tasty food available they made a uh, it was his birthday these are my friends john and rachel and rachel made a a birthday cake which i insisted on calling tofu cake <laughs>
<laughs> but apparently didn't didn't involve any tofu and is was insanely addicting. I have no idea what's in it. I'm afraid to find out because I'm afraid at all. I live in bad faith about the dead animals. I don't know how you are. You know, I, I know that it's not environmentally sustainable, blah blah blah, but right. I sure fucking love pork. <laughs> I just don't want to give up the bacon. But I get, you know, why it's wrong. And then when I go over to their place and I eat vegan food, I'm like, ah I'm 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 both satisfied taste bud wise and I feel virtuous. And then I go back to eating dead cows. Yeah, my theory is, you know, I if I became a vegetarian it wouldn't be because I care about animals, it'd be because I hate vegetables so fucking much. So, <laughs> yeah. Come you on, suffer you piece of broccoli. Take them out. <laughs> That's right. Let's see how you are. Yeah, I, the problem with vegan cuisine is it lacks a sweet, sweet taste of murder. That's what makes it so delicious. <laughs> Take that, Marissi. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm eating a hamburger that was right really now good. in my mind. Uh, the sweet, sweet taste oh, of Oh, God. Murder. I do feel I, – I'm absolutely on board with you. I know it's wrong. I do it, and I, I blame my generation, and I keep hoping that while my ancestors thought it was cool to own slaves, hopefully my descendants will realize it was really stupid of me to eat meat and will make the world a better place. But you don't want to be that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You, you don't make want to be that, that person. Step forward. I'm just going to sit here wallowing in delicious, delicious Rogan Josh with lamb. I'll live in bad faith. I, I used to tell I had to, I used to live with an aunt who's very crunchy granola, environmentally sound. And we got on great because, you know, our politics and our environmental politics are very similar. But she used to chide me because I would eat bacon. I'd get bacon from Whole Foods to thick cut bacon, which I adore. And she would, she wasn't upset about it, but she'd just be like, she'd kind of tisk tisk, and I'd be like, hey, babe, <laughs> I may vote green, but I eat Republican. Leave yeah, well, me alone. My, you know, my son does not like bacon, and so my vegetarian neighbor <laughs> found out about this and kind of perked up and said, there's hope. I was like, well, it's a start. He doesn't like salty pig anyway. Oh, that's right. That's right. We have not mentioned very often on the podcast Pat, Pat's uh, crunchy granola neighbors who grow hops on the side of their house, which I think is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, though apparently they're not high enough quality to be used anymore in his beer brewing hobby. So they're like decorative hops? I, I don't know. That's all right. They, they, almost, they no doubt attract good things. Right, so. so anyway, uh, besides food, which we both love, yes. we're going to talk about jazz today, and uh, Mike kind of left it up to me. Let's do, could this be the all-cuisine issue? Let's do the all-cuisine uh, podcast. We'll just talk about our favorite foods. <laughs> yeah, I think there's like a, maybe a camper van Beethoven song about that. Oh, a favorite fruit? Yes. It surfaces in memory. It's a dark song, uh, classmates. Anyone who's listening at home, it's a really depressing song. <laughs> It's about how everyone's so depressed that they're going to die and they're laying there watching fruit rot on a vacation in the tropics. It's a really fucked up song. And I can see her squeeze the phone between her chin and shoulder. And I can almost smell her breath Faint with a sweet scent of decay